0: Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. Today's episode is going to be with Howard Frampton. He's one of the CHA board members, lifelong turkey hunter. We're just finishing up uh, San Carlos hunt and the youth hunts. And we're just going to speak to him and pick his brain about little tidbits on turkey hunting. Some of you have seen him speak as a guest uh, on some of our seminars in the past. He is, uh, as we like to joke around, the sixth Beth. Six best turkey caller in Arizona. Many uh, years ago at the local Cabela's, they had a uh, turkey calling contest, and it allowed you to go on to NWTF Nationals. They had some really good people there, and they needed six in order to make it a, a legal competition. And uh, they only had five people show up. Howard was there to help set up, help get things going, because he was a part of one of the NWTF chapters here in Phoenix, And uh, they pretty much talked him into getting up on stage and uh, doing it. And Howard definitely knows how to run diaphragm calls and slate calls and box calls and whatnot. But he wasn't prepared, didn't practice or anything. And anyway, there was only six people, and he came in six. So that is his claim to fame. And at all uh, camps and mentored hunts and whatnot, we all joke around, and it's all in good fun that he is the sixth best turkey caller in the state of Arizona so we will be speaking with Howard Frampton today on all things turkey hunting but specifically Merriam's here in uh, most of Arizona we have Goulds in southern Arizona and a really small portion of Rio Grande's in the northwest but Merriam's are our most common and that's what we're going to be talking about today we hope you enjoy this episode Welcome to another episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. We have one of our fellow board members in studio today, Howard Frampton, along with Mikey. Mikey, how are you?
1: Man, we are excited for today. It is the end of April, which means turkey season here in Arizona and all across the country. So we're ready to talk some turkey.
0: Mr. Frampton, how are you, Howard? Doing great, sir. Glad to be here with both of you guys. We're going to be talking... Kind of, We'll just touch on this year's hunt that you had on the San Carlos. And then we just recently finished up um, mentoring on the NWTF and um, the youth hunt in northern Arizona. So without further ado, plenty of people know you. Plenty of people know the comical side of Howard. We'll probably get a little bit of that um, if you don't know him already. He's our big prankster. Um, you got to be on your toes when you're around Howard. All the kids realize that, um, some of them that (laughs) kind of grow up a little sheltered in a little bit of a bubble, Howard, uh, lets them know real quickly that, um, it's all fun. It's, it's a good time at the youth camp and that don't take things too seriously that we're there first and foremost to have a good time. Um, but without further ado, how are you brother?
2: Doing great. Just. Happy to be here with you guys today and talk turkey, and yeah, you're right. My number one rule anytime I'm on any hunt, whether it's an adult hunt or a kid's (laughs) hunt, is we are having fun. The harvest is second, Um, the enjoyment and just the fellowship with the kids and adults is number one in my book.
0: Absolutely. So you and I, unfortunately, we didn't have a long time in San Carlos. Um, I was unsuccessful um i won't say that you shot the bird that i thought i was gonna get but um
2: oh you mean the one i called in for you Is yeah. that the one you're talking about the one i roosted the night before <laughs> yeah that one Oh, that okay one, all right just that checking. one
0: that one <laughs> um but howard was successful let's let's talk about san carlos this year
2: yeah what it was a it was a movie to use the kids vernacular nowadays but um yeah chet and i and Mike Gornoski put in for the San Carlos tag over a year ago, um, got drawn, silly us, we didn't pay attention to the calendar at all when we put in for the hunt, and it just happened to open on the Saturday of Easter weekend. So once we got drawn and they called us and said, hey, you you know, opening day is the 8th of April, we're like, great, let's go. You know, we were going to spend four or five days up there, and then all of a sudden, We all looked at the calendar and went, oh, that's Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and um, I know Chet and I both and Mike also had family commitments on Easter, so, you know, that's a big day for us being Christians, and so we weren't missing out on that with our family, so Chet and I decided to go up Friday afternoon and set camp up pretty quickly and did about a a six-and-a-half-mile walk trying to find turkeys. We'd never hunted that unit or that reservation before, and... Um, we had some friends of ours that were up there, were going to be there the whole week, and so we were able to camp with them. So they had a campsite already picked, so that was the easy part. And then Chet and I got there, what time did we get there? About 2, 2.30? Yeah. Yeah. Um, threw camp up pretty quick. We just, uh, you know, wall tent and a couple cots and decided to do a little walk, and both of us kind of threw our bino harnesses on and a couple little mouth calls and stuff like that in our pockets, and we just took off. We didn't even bring our turkey vests or – nothing so yeah we thought was going to be like you know maybe a mile two mile walk just looking for track and seeing if we roost something (laughs) at night turned into i think we we tracked it on onyx and it was like over six miles that we walked and we got coming back to camp we did we saw a ton of fresh sign and good track and so we knew we're in the right area up there and did a little coyote yelp at what should have been they should have been in the trees and had two different birds fire off. And so we made a game plan for the morning.
0: It was, um, Howard's been Turkey hunting far longer than I ever have, but it was very, very interesting to see, um, one probably because it has less pressure, less hunters, even though they have plenty of tags to hand out, it's just dense up there. It's a game rich area with lots of birds and seeing, you know, you can hike numerous miles in normal game management units in Arizona. And you even if you know where to look, you may see some sign, you may see a print in dirt or an old mud, if it freshly rained, or you may see some scratching the pine needles and, and some fresh black dirt that's been turned up. Uh, But to see the amount of of sign up there was just absolutely incredible to see multiple trees that are used over and over and over again and have that amount of turkey droppings underneath it or to see in a what what would you say a half mile stretch of all the pine needles turned up and the normal uh droppings of a jake or you know of a of a male turkey versus of a hen um you can tell the difference easily howard will touch on that but in a half mile stretch just seeing the amount of sign was ridiculous compare that to your years of turkey hunting in arizona or, or in other states
2: yeah i've been fortunate blessed to hunt multiple states in the united states um some successful, some not successful, but always great trips. But um, this was one area that I've never hunted before up there. And, and, again, they do a really good job that the Indian tribe up there does a really good job of managing the game and, and population and accessibility and those kind of things. And this year in Arizona especially was a really wet winter, a lot of snow. So we got up there on what they call their They have three different hunts, a first, second, and third hunt. We were up there on the second hunt. Um, I'm not even from I think Mike, you talked to one of the game wardens up there right that said yep. that the first hunt was
1: yeah very few harvests just they just weren't talking and just they just have not migrated back and just was not a normal early season turkey hunt.
2: yeah and we and Chet and I you know witnessed the just the compaction of all the grass, you know still from just the snow being gone probably for less than a week when we got there on Friday right. Um, everything was wet and moist, um, really good conditions, but yeah, that first hunt had to be a nightmare. There was probably still snow in a lot of places up there for those guys on that hunt. And so, yeah, it was just a, a neat opportunity, but yeah, we, we, there was a roost tree in camp that we found that legitimately had probably two to three inches of turkey droppings underneath it. And that's usually a sign that they're wintering there where they're, you know, they'll stay in that same tree cause it was kind of right by a big meadow and a big, um, dirt tank that's there it's kind of by the one of the main roads and so it was easy to get to and camp there but um it was just neat to see that much droppings in one area where you know obviously they were probably roosting in that tree pretty much the winter time just because the open area probably got windblown and got a little bit more accessible for them to get some feed and that kind of stuff during the winter
0: so we we do that six to seven mile hike um what is your go-to for your locator or your shock at night in order? So it's it's nighttime. We've walked around. We're, we know we're in the area. We see sign. Whether you see turkeys or not, that's, you know, icing on the cake if you visually see them. But if you see the sign, you see the droppings, you see what you think they're going to be eating, and you're waiting till it's, you know, at that time it was between 6 30 to 7 30 nowadays in um, this springtime is when it's getting gray light and when it's going to to darkness when we know that they're going to go up to roost talk about what you're using or what you do in order to find and locate them to know that you're in the general area
2: well normally if we're out just scouting and we find relatively fresh sign the turkeys don't travel you know 50 miles in a day they're they're staying in their normal habitat they're kind of you know, their routine is to travel in like kind of a little circle pattern and come back and kind of roost. And most areas in Arizona, if you're any type of hunter, you know the terrain in Arizona and the mountains where the turkeys live is they're on the ridgelines. And they're tor- typically turkeys roost in trees because if they roost on the ground or sleep on the ground at night, the predators can get to them very easily. So, you know, their preferred place is to, to, is to roost up in a tree. Now that can be 15 feet off the ground or it can be 200 feet off the ground. Depends on the size of trees that are in the area that they're living in. But um, most of the time they're going to come off of a top of a ridge and fly out to a tree that's on the ridge slope and usually fly maybe a little bit up or just coast straight out into that tree. And, you know, that'll give them the height that they need to be safe from the predators. Um, normally, I don't, I don't do sounds in the woods unless they're natural at the time of day I'm doing them. <clears throat> that's so, key. So like a crow call... You know, during the daylight hours is when you'd use a crow call. Um, If it's getting dusk, um, and dusk to me is when you can't really make out the greens in the grass anymore, that's dusk. You know, daylight, if you can still make out really bright colors of flowers and grasses and pine needles and all that stuff, um, that's still not dusk. That's daylight to me, actually. And so I don't normally coyote call until it's getting almost dusk. Um, they'll be in the trees by then because as soon as they start losing that visual of being able to pick out things be- with colors and things because they have really good eyesight, the two main things that protect turkeys and make them survive is their hearing and their sight. They don't smell very well. They do smell, but they smell kind of like what we do on a, that kind of level. Um, but I've been told that their eyesight is like a 8 or 10 power binocular as far as that goes, and their hearing is... Obviously, well superior to ours as well. So, that's their two their two defense mechanisms. And then, once they if they don't like something, or they hear something they don't like, or they see something that they don't like, they're running or flying. And turkeys will fly. Um,
0: contrary to b- popular belief, they do and can fly.
2: Yep. Um, we'll go into you know after I shot the gobbler, I shot the the nine or ten hens that were on the ground. All flew off, probably two three hundred yards in the air easily um you know up the canyon that we were in and so it was kind of neat to see them fly off um, and watch the turkey flop on the ground a little bit too was the best part but um, so they're gonna they're gonna run or they're gonna run or fly typically you see them run because that's the easiest way for them Uh, because again if you're in thicker terrain or thicker cover they just can't get in the air and fly as easily you know
0: right so like howard said Emulate what you're hearing out in the woods. If it's daytime, when you're sitting out there, first thing when the sun's coming up, what are you hearing? You're hearing the Tweety birds. You're hearing everything come to life. And, yeah, you can hear coyotes start yipping and howling in the morning, but more often than not, it is a dust thing. And during daylight hours, you're hearing the crows or the ravens as they're circling or looking, you know, as a scavenger. The owls are at nighttime. So emulate what nature is doing. Otherwise, you're not you're not blending in per se.
2: Right. And you're just trying to create a shock gobble. You're making a loud noise. I've had guys that have um, elk bugled because that's another natural sound. It's a high-pitched, i-coyote yelp, typically with a mouth call. I don't use a coyote tube or anything like that. Um, you know, just a really loud You know, yelping noise from a coyote doesn't have to be perfect. Doesn't have to be a certain sequence. And a lot of guys back east will do owl hoots. And there are some owls, obviously, in Arizona. Um, But I've never been successful with an owl hoot. Um, I'm just not good at it, number one. Um, And number two, the coyote yelp that I can do out of a mouth call is really high-pitched. And it carries a lot further than trying to do an owl hoot that's typically more of a baritone or bass sound to it. It doesn't have that high... High pitch.
1: Everybody has their own way to go, and I typically do a lot of owl hooting. Again, it's the natural sounds. I've never used a coyote call, and usually I'm just using that. Then once it gets daylight, then I'm just like a hen, just yelping with my box call.
2: Yeah, and the the one problem with the the only problem I've ever had with a coyote yelp is if you're doing it and you're too close to them. they're it that that night they know there's a predator down there on the ground. So I would not. Go back in the next morning, even before daylight, and use a coyote yelp. Coyote yelps are, again, a predator that yep. if you coyote yelping and you hear a gobble, you've got to move because they heard that yelp come right from where you're standing. And those birds are amazing how they can lock on to where that sound came from and come right to you. Same thing on your calling. When you are calling for them, um, you know, not to get too far down on story trails right now, but... You know they they'll come right over a top of a ridge or up out of a canyon and come onto a bench you're sitting on and look right at the tree you're sitting at.
0: I think that is key though. If you did do a predator call of any sort, I mean, it seems so instinctual to not stay there, but a lot of people I think probably do just thinking that they're only locating it. And but you got to put yourself in in kind of their even though they got little pea brain. You got to put it in their perspective. They know that something down there could potentially harm them or eat them, and because their hearing, like you said, is so good, why would they ever fly down towards that? Right. So you got to weigh those parameters of when you do that call, and how dark is it still for you to be able to move, you know, and get a better better spot for them to potentially, you know, fly down to. Right.
2: Right, and the other thing is, once you hear that gobble and you kind of pinpoint where they are, just stop and leave. Because, again, most of us hunt public land in Arizona. Um, You know, even the San Carlos is still public land. There's other hunters in that area. And the bird we roosted, there was a camp half a mile, max. There was a guy, two guys camping there with a fire going when we walked out. And so they may have heard those birds they may not have if they were in camp we don't know if they were there but there was activity at their camp that night on friday night so you know the more you have them gobble which is super cool to hear i love hearing turkeys gobble um but the more you can make them just not gobble and you know where they are you can go back in there in the morning and be first in there and that's the other key is making sure that you're in there first
1: so based on that So especially public land, we're not talking Midwest and private property and everything else where you control all the elements. So it's getting evening time, you're trying to roost a bird, you get them to to gobble and you have a a general idea, and now you just want to go quiet. You don't want that bird talking because you basically don't want to bring attention to all the other hunters that may be trying to do the same thing. So how do you figure out the next morning where that bird, where you think that bird's going to be?
2: Usually I try to hunt as well all of us do we kind of have our favorite units that we hunt and i'm big on that with guys that that hunt a lot of even different animal species just find a unit you're comfortable with and just keep putting in for that unit and hunt that unit cuz then you'll know all the the drop the roads and you know a lot of roads in Arizona are old dirt logging road type of things and you'll know where different things are in those areas and so You know, one of the things is I use Onyx a lot. I think that all of us use that, and we kind of share some points back and forth. But you can look, you know, once that turkey gobbles, you can kind of go, okay, he's that direction. And you can bring up your Onyx map and go, oh, yeah, there's a drop-off into a canyon there. He's on the other side of that canyon because if he's, you know, you can tell by the distance and the loudness of their voice when they gobble back at you. So you can kind of pinpoint where he is, and then I drop a pin there. Like, that's what Chet and I did. We dropped a pin basically in the basic area where we thought he was. We didn't know what tree he was in because he was, you know, what, three 400 yards probably from us when we were on that other yeah, ridge.
0: Yeah, probably 300.
2: Yeah. Um, but we knew he was basically in this area, and we could drop an onyx pin there. And then <clears throat> what we did that night is we walked back to camp in the dark, like a mile and a half back to camp in the dark. Um, and then we got in the truck, and we drove down the road – past him to kind of pre-scout it because again we had never hunted that area and we were able to find a little two track that went in and we looked on onyx and said yeah this road does go so you know we were able to go right in there first thing in the morning um but without the tool or having good maps or whatever or even a knowledge of the unit um you know you're kind of at a disadvantage years ago in in 6a where i used to hunt turkeys a lot um up there just south of Clear Creek, there's a whole bunch of finger ridges there. And I did the typical rookie mistake. I had the bird pegged right where he was. I came in on the top, but I didn't realize that there was a logging road halfway down that canyon, and that bird flew out of the tree, hit that logging road, and just kept on going. He never was going to come to the top of that ridge where I was, where I thought naturally if there wasn't that logging road, he should have just walked up to the top and walked on the road that I walked in on
1: okay so now let's take a step back so now you have an idea where the the bird's at you studied it you know you have a game plan so now it's an hour before daylight so what is your what's your method to sneak in on that bird so he's not talking yet it's still dark and now you're trying to make a play to be in preparation to be first in line for that bird so so what is what does that look like
2: so if you think that the bird again same Similar to what I said earlier, if, if you can see green grass and you can see green pine needles, so can the birds, and they're, that's the time they're going to start getting ready to fly down. Um, so let's just say, for argument's sake, that that's 530, just so we kind of have a timeline, whatever the actual time is. You got to always pay attention to when legal shooting light is also and legal limits on that, but... Um, Usually if you're, if let's say it's 5.30, if you're in the woods at 4.30, you're already late. So I like to get in there probably an hour and a half before 5.30. So like four o'clock I'd be, you know, and if camp was in a, and I had a hike, you know, you just got to time how far you got to drive or how far you got to walk to get in there. But if you're not in there at least an hour and a half before fly down time, um, two things are happening. One is somebody else could very easily beat you in there. Okay, because if you made that bird gobble and there was somebody else on the other ridge line, they may know right where that same bird is. Um, and that goes back to the ethics of hunting. We had a guy this last weekend on the kids hunt, Chet and I did, that we beat him into the spot and we were driving in and he caught up to us because um, Chet was kind of driving slow in his Chevy. If we had my truck, we probably would have made it down there a lot quicker. Wow. Um, but... He 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 stopped. We stopped. We saw him behind us. We stopped. He kind of got out of his truck, walked up to us. We had a good conversation, and we beat him in there. So he did the ethical thing and the right thing, and we've all done the same thing. <clears throat> is he said, "I'll go find someplace else to hunt," even though he had been in there prior scouting and knew the area, and but we had beat him in there, and so that's kind of my rule of thumb. Also, is you know, first one in there gets the chance at the bird. So if you're not yep. early enough, you're you're yep. you're late. Yep. So.
1: Now you're scrambling trying to figure out where I'm going to go now. You're down to limited time and absolutely. Yeah,
2: Yeah, so getting in there super early like like Chet and I did um, a couple weeks ago on that hunt was, you know, we walked in, we got in there, it's super dark. Um, There was a full moon that night, so we were able to walk in without headlamps. I'm a big no-headlamp guy. Um, I'd rather stumble my way in, at least get close enough to where I know they are, and then as soon as it gets a little bit light to where I can move and see without a headlamp. Because even if you're using a red light or a white light or whatever your green, you know, lights. Um, Turkeys can see all that. Yeah, they're, they're going to see that reflection, that light. Um, so they're going to be cautious of coming that direction that they saw the light from. Um, and so, again, I'm not a big headlamp guy, you know, walking into the turkey woods. I will have one with me just for safety. And if I do need to walk around and get something out, I can turn it on. But, um, yeah, we walked in, probably got to, what, 200 yards from where we thought they were
0: roughly yeah yeah
2: and then we just stopped and stood there we didn't sit down we didn't do anything we kind of stood there probably for 15 20 minutes and then we heard the first you know i think the hens talked first if i remember right and then the gobbler went off and then we knew we still had 45 minutes to an hour before they were going to fly down so we made a game plan closed it probably to 75 100 yards away from them
0: yeah it's so hard to tell Based on where they are in the tree, whether they're facing away or towards us, yeah. but we knew that they were, we knew that they were within a hundred. I'd say,
2: yeah, and it was still dark enough when they were talking that we were able to get in and we both set up and um, what we thought were good shooting lanes. Depends on you know we kind of put Chet on one side of the tree and me on the other side, kind of made a triangle. If you're thinking about it that way, of what you're looking at the tree, and it was kind of a little meadow there that we were able to shoot across or have open sight lines. But um, the other thing with setting up and Mike, you probably were alluding to this a little bit is what do you do when you first get there is Mm -hmm. you want to make sure that you're a sitting against brush, bush, tree, something that blocks your outline. The camo (laughs) obviously is critical with Turkey hunting and then you got to have open shooting lanes. So you can't have a bunch of stuff in your way. Um, You know, so take a look around, get, Get a good shooting lane, you know, a couple trees in your way is not usually a big deal because they can walk behind the tree, and that actually, if their head's covered, they it's a good chance for you to move a little bit or readjust. Um, but you don't want to have a bunch <clears throat> of thick brush in front of you where you only have 15 yards of a shot before it gets really thick. You want to try to find those. And there it's, sometimes it's a scramble. We did on the youth hunt, we had a couple times we had to actually readjust because we – think we had a good spot and then you sit down and you look at it and you're like, Ooh, this, there's no good shooting lanes here. Let's move.
1: Yep. Yeah. So as you're approaching, so are you trying to be on the upside, the downside, the even side, where you think the birds are? What's, what's the logic typically when you're coming in? Cause normally they're on a the side of a hill, the ponderosa is going straight up the hill and they're halfway up the hill. So they could be even with the top of the hill. They may be a little lower. They could be higher. So what is your optimal, positioning Is it to be on the top side, the bottom side, even side? What are you looking for when you're trying to make that approach and you're trying to f- dissect all of that information based on the terrain to find where you're going to sit?
2: And that, that's a great question because Chet and I actually messed up a little bit that on Saturday night when we were trying to get him a bird. We didn't know which way the bird's pattern was because the birds will usually you know, assume that there's a top ridge, And then the trees are on, let's say, the north side of that ridge, right? So they fly into the tree or the west side of that ridge or the east side. Some people say the birds only roost on the east side because they get the first light. Well, sometimes that doesn't really matter. If they're close to the top of the ridge, the light's going to hit them anyway. So, you know, the east side, west side of a ridge, you know, most people think that they're only going to roost on the east side of the ridge. And, you know, that could be you know, maybe 65, 70% of the time, but that other 30, 40% of the time, they could be on the west side just as easy. Um, So we weren't sure where the bird's pattern was because they're going to fly down basically from where they flew up from because they know that that's safe and easy to get to. And again, if they're coming off the top of the ridge and flying out to a tree, they're going to go back to the side of that ridge. They're typically not going to fly straight down out of the tree or drop out of the tree, if you can envision that. Or... And if you booger them a little bit and you make a bunch of noise or you're wiggling around too much or you make too much noise coming in, they could fly right across the canyon to the other side of the ridge very easily. Um, they do fly very well. They don't prefer that, but they'll do it and they'll take off and you know, fly 300, 400 yards across the canyon and be gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I usually try to figure out where they flew up from based on the terrain and then try to get you know that 75 to 100 yards away from them on that flat top of that because they're going to fly to that flat top and then start pecking around and reorganize because they might be in two, three different trees. If it's a flock of 15, 20 birds, they're not all in one tree. No, normally they'll be like, you know, if there's two or three trees right next to each other, they can all be within, you know, 30 feet of each other in three different trees. Exactly.
1: So, okay, so now you're set up and you pick the tree and you believe they're going to fly down to you. So you just you just sit there and go quiet or do you make a, a hen sound or any type of gobbler sounds, or just say, "Hey, there's a turkey over here." Just giving you guys an FYI, or are you just going silent and just kind of waiting to see how it plays out.
2: Normally, I don't make a lot of calls unless they're calling really aggressively in the tree. Um, I,
1: we had a perfect example of that. Yeah, and I was just yeah. So, so, do you make any calls at all, or you just make a couple just to let them know?
2: Well, there is like a soft tree yelp. a lot of guys will do that you know it's basically a yelp but it's super super soft and basically that's just a contentment yelp that when they're sitting in the tree they're talking back and forth like hey you know Susie, bobby i'm over here you know and they're just like you know real soft you know not an aggressive and then the birds at the san carlos the the gobbler started going off and then another gobbler up the canyon from us probably two three hundred yards from us started going off um And so the boss hen of the group, she started squawking like crazy, and so Chet and I kind of decided that we were going to just, you know, be aggressive towards her, because that's another technique, is if you can get the boss hen, who's usually leading the flock on the ground, that's why you normally see the gobblers at the end of the line, if they were all lined out, the gobblers are not normally leading, the hens are, Um, but if that aggressive hen or the boss hen is making a lot of noise in the tree before they fly down. And you can hear them fly down if you're close enough. They're a big wingspan bird. So you can imagine the ruckus they make when they fly down. They're flapping their wings. Um, and so, you know, if, if I hear them fly down and I haven't typically made any noise and I want them to know I'm over there, then If I hear one bird fly out, I might do a little more aggressive yelp just to kind of know I'm there. And then there's a fly down cackle, which you can YouTube all these sounds and everything a lot better than the three of us can create. But there's no perfect turkey sound. Um, So do your best when you're calling. But you can hear a fly down cackle, the kind of the noise they make when they fly down. And if you imitate that, then all the birds think that there's another hen or something over there. And, and
0: that it's safe and there's right. already a turkey over here. So
2: Yeah, let's go check it out. And like Chet and I did, we were really aggressively arguing with her. So if you think of, you know, ladies arguing and, you know, they're talking and the other one's talking over the top mm-hmm. of them because they're both trying to make their point, you know, and be aggressive and keep that guy interested in them. So she would start squawking and then I'd start squawking before she's even done squawking. Then Chet would start squawking before I was even done and it was just, you know, a bunch of chaos sounding in the woods. But it worked. They flew down. We made a bunch of fly-down, cackle-type noises. And, and then, you know, 15, 20 minutes later, the birds circled. They were on the ground talking. We were talking back to them, and she was still squawking like crazy. And we're squawking right back at her. And she. And decided, the funny thing
0: was, we I didn't hear them. Maybe you did. I didn't hear them, but I saw the tip-top of one of those ponderosas, swaying back and forth i could see the tree that they flew down from but it was just movement i didn't know where they went and it was still that gray light so you didn't you had no idea where which direction it was you just saw the tip top of that tree could you see that as well
2: yeah i saw them one fly out i could see the silhouette of it you know okay. against the sky um and then heard them but they've they kind of took off south of us and then so they hit the ground south of us and then you could hear them on the ground. We just kept talking and talking and talking, and she was talking back to us, and other hens were talking, and and they just came over to investigate like crazy, like, okay, where's this bossy hen at? We're going to come check it out. So
0: That's exactly what happened, um, and, and this was just kind of spontaneous. We didn't go in with a plan that that was going to happen. We didn't know that the hen was going to do that. It was just on the fly, sounded like a good thing, and you're kind of – trial and error, right? If she stopped, Howard and I probably would have known, okay, we're being too aggressive. We're intimidating her at that point. But she kept talking over and over well before flying down. So, you know, you're not calling continuous, but you're talking over her. You're making those yelps. You're making vocalizations with the diaphragm, with the box call, with the pot call over her. And that's upsetting her that, you know, you're trampling on her words, and then I'm trampling on Howard's, and then he's doing it to me all the same time while they're still up there. And mind you, the two gobblers, the one that was with that that flock and then the one that was a couple hundred yards away, are vocalizing based on the hen that is the real hen that's in the tree with them and the perceived ones that, that we're portraying. So it, it ended up working out great. And it was awesome for me to experience that because I hadn't, I mean, you hear about those stories, but I hadn't seen where it was that bossy of a hen, like you were saying, you hear the ones that do talk and then they kind of hush up, but for her to keep going, that raspy hen, uh, it was, it was awesome. It was incredible to be able to experience that.
2: Yeah, it was neat and it's it and it's not worked. I mean, I've done the exact same thing on other birds and they hit the ground and they walk away because she doesn't want to lose her man to another lady. Mm-hmm. So another hen. So they'll take that gobbler and walk off and the gobbler's going to follow the girls that he's already dating. He's not looking for a new date. And again, we talked about this at the youth camp when we were educating the kids, but the um, you know, it's an unnatural sequence that we're doing when we're calling for turkeys because we're making the female turkey sound trying to attract the male gobbler to come to the hen where in nature the gobbler gobbles to tell the hens where he is and is expecting the hen to come to him. So why it worked this time is because we annoyed the hen enough to where she came over to pick a fight basically to use that analogy on it and um, when they came over And then Chet was talking because he couldn't really see all the birds that I could see because of the, again, the terrain and the bushes that were in the way and just the way the birds came in. Um, Chet called a couple more times, not knowing that they were already right in front of me. And two of the hens broke off and came up looking for him. Like, okay, I know there's a hen up here somewhere. Where is she? She's been squawking at me all day. And the other ones came to where I was making the noise because we were probably 60 yards apart, 70 yards apart. Right. Um, we couldn't really even see each other because of the terrain. I had and no
0: the, idea where you were sitting yeah. once we split.
2: Yeah, I knew where he was just because I knew when he was calling and he knew where I was kind of basically where I was calling from. But, um, so yeah, it was kind of a neat setup that way. But I've also had the exact opposite where you're talking to him. and But to kind of circle back to your question, Mike, of, you know, what do you do when they're up in the tree – Um, the soft tree yelp will let the other turkeys know that there's turkeys in that area. So that's always the go-to soft tree yelp sound. And again, it's super quiet because you think about it, they're just waking up. So they're, you know, they've got their morning voice going, right? They're not, you know, it's not after four cups of coffee. It's, you know, I haven't had my coffee yet. Don't talk to me kind of thing. So it's super (laughs) quiet, right? um or like brayden in the morning like he didn't want to say a thing when we're waking him up at 4 a.m he's like oh leave me alone you know Mm -hmm. and he's got that morning kid voice going and so that's that's kind of the tree help.
1: yep exactly so so let's take a step back so now let's say you get them talking and they go quiet when they hit the ground so what would that scenario be like so then what would happen so everything went right they're talking they know you're there, they fly down, and all of a sudden they just go silent. What's, what's the next play?
2: Normally, my go-to routine at that time is to call about every 10 to 15 minutes. And, again, if you know the birds just flew out of the tree and they're 100 yards from you, think about the volume level of your calls. You don't want to just get on that box or slate or mouth call or whatever you're comfortable using. And they're all great calls. Um, the mouth call is my go-to when I've got a gun in my hand because I don't have to have my hands to use a slate pot call, whatever you call it. And then a, or a box call and any limited movement. Cause then it's just my mouth moving my lips, maybe a little bit, but that's usually behind a face mask anyway. Um, so, you know, you keep your movement to a, a very minimal using a mouth call. So if you've not mastered or can't use a mouth call, then you've got to be a little bit more careful with your setup. But if they hit the ground and go quiet I usually try to call about every 10 or 15 minutes because they may be just deciding whether they want to come back to you. You know, if you overcall and get too crazy, if they're not calling back to you, then I don't normally overcall at that point. But if they're gobbling still, and every time I make a call, I hear a gobble, then they're interested because they're hearing it. They're responding to it. Then I may pick up the pace a little bit. And then you can kind of tell if they're going away from you or coming towards you, because and sometimes when their head turns and they gobble south versus north, it sounds a little further away. But most of the time you can tell if they're coming towards you or they're moving away from you. And if they're moving away from you, you know, and you've been there for 20, 30 minutes and the gobbles keep getting further and further away, they're probably not coming back, has been my experience. So then it's time to figure out, again, looking at your map or knowing the terrain, where are they heading? And then make a plan. To, to outpace them because, again, they're not running away from you. They're walking and feeding and walking and feeding. So if you move it pretty quickly and do a big circle around, you might get the opportunity to get in front of them. Or, again, if you have multiple days, which is usually what, you know, you'll hunt two or three days in a row, and, you know, if you're lucky enough to get on the same birds day after day, you can finally kind of semi-pattern them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what Chet and I did on that Saturday as we shot that bird Saturday morning, and, um, and then started looking for some other birds because it was only one gobbler in that flock. So we left that flock alone, went to a different area, and we just started trying to find other birds and then kind of a last ditch effort because we had to leave Saturday night to come home. And we went back right where that roost tree was that those birds had flown up into and set up there. And again, we didn't know their pattern. So the mistake we made that night was we sat up or set up kind of below to cover Both areas, one where they would have come off the ridge and flown into the tree or come across the little valley that we were in and then flown and walked up to the top and flown in. So we didn't know, so we kind of flipped a coin and set up in one spot. Yeah. Lo and behold, the turkeys came from the opposite direction. The tippy top. Yeah. So um, we were able to chase them a little bit, only because they gobbled so far before they got to the roost tree that we were able to move up. Um, a little closer to where we thought they were coming from. But didn't work out that night. Yep.
1: That's turkey hunting. (laughs) Okay, so now they flew down. They got quiet. Um, Basically, we're not being aggressive. We're having patience. We're just going to sit there and just almost just like a waiting game where a lot of guys, I'm guilty, is we just want to get up and push and be aggressive. So you're just going to sit tight, hold tight. It might be... They flew down at 6 a.m. Now you're sitting there till 6.45, and all of a sudden you finally hear them that they're a lot farther away from you. So now let's say you believe they landed 100 yards. Now it sounds like they're 150 yards, and this has been 45 minutes because where a lot of people make a mistake is they they get up after 10 minutes and they start walking to them, and all of a sudden there's turkeys running everywhere, and, and you blew them out because they were there the whole time. You just couldn't see them. So you hear them. So when you do the approach, you're not making any calls. If you think they're going down the ridge another 250 yards, you basically made the determination, now you're silent and you're going to sneak and not make a sound and try to get ahead of them. Then you'll do a call at that point and say, hey, now I got turkeys ahead of me, come see me.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you know that, you know, they flew out of the tree, they started heading south and they're two, 300 yards away now, and the last sound you heard from them, I go, you know, again, if they're heading south, I'm heading due west, three, 400 yards easy and then head and do south. I'm not trying to circle around them. I try to get as far away as I can from them and then boogie it south as fast as I can and try to get in front of them. The further away you are, the more noise you can make when you walk because they're used to hearing deer and elk and, you know, other th- animals in the woods. So, that, you know, people walking at five, 600 yards, 700, 800 yards away from them, you know, quarter mile away or whatever, even a half mile away, they're not paying attention to that because that's just natural wood sound to them. Um, You know, if you try to follow right behind them and catch up to them, you'll never never catch up to them without getting busted, like you said, Mike. You're going to walk. Somehow you're going to come around that next tree, and they're going to be sitting there at 60 yards, and you're going to step on a pine cone or something. They're going to turn and look at you, and they're just going to run. Yep, exactly, exactly.
1: Okay, so now you get ahead of them. So you heard them. You went, basically did a half horseshoe to get in front of them. You think you're... 80 to 120 yards ahead of them. You believe you're in that direction. So you reset up, look at all of your same shooting lanes, your points, believe where they're going to come, then do you make a turkey call or do you just kind of sit back and wait?
2: Usually, once I get initially set up, I go stone quiet for a good five or ten minutes just to let nature cover my approach. Because again, if I'm walking in, in that example, you know if I think I'm two or three hundred yards ahead of them, Um, I'm still making noise getting to that spot. I'll get in, get settled, break branches, move stuff, get comfortable. You know, that's why you see all the turkey vests have the big fat pad on them because you Mm want to be comfortable because you're going to sit there for a while. And then, you know, I'll sit there for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes before I make a call. Just kind of let the sound settle. You know, if the birds are chirping again and you can hear squirrels running around, that's kind of, you know, the quiet zone. The birds feel safe because they're making natural noises. You can start making little, and again, start out soft on your calls, not loud. You don't want to have, you know, because they may be 80 yards from you, not 200 like you think.
0: Right, right.
2: So, again, start soft, you know, whether it's a box call or a slate call or mouth call, just, you know, start out, you know, good cadence on your, on your Yelps. Um, I use a lost Yelp a lot is what my go-to call is there because you're trying to say, hey, I'm a turkey, I'm over here, where's everybody else at now? And, you know, that's kind of their natural thing is, you know, the boss hen is if there's another turkey in the area, she may answer back. Um, Or if you're sounding, you know, attractive enough to the gobbler, he may gobble off saying, hey, I'm over here, come check me out. Um, And so, you know, start out soft. If they don't respond, go a little louder. And then, again, put the call down, sit there, be ready, keep your eyes peeled if you have got a couple hunters. Chet and I, you know, did this really well together even this weekend and the week, you know, when we were in San Carlos was, you know, I'll cover a 90, 180-degree section of property and Chet will cover the other 180 degrees so that you're both not looking in the same direction because they could come from anywhere. They'll circle around trees. They'll walk around logs. They, they usually take the path of least resistance. So if you can think about your setup and you've got a bunch of deadfalls and you're sitting in the middle at 50 yards of deadfalls all around you, they're not coming to you because they can't get through the deadfalls very easily. They're going to walk around those deadfalls. They're not going to jump on top of them and jump over them. They're going to walk around them. That's why you see a lot of turkey track on roads um, because the turkeys will walk on roads all the time because it's easy. It's like us walking down the, you know, if we got to go to point A and point B and there's a road, we're going to walk the road versus walking through the trees.
0: Yeah, do you want to high step over tall grass and deadfall and rocks or do you want to take a game trail or a two track. Right. And yeah, that's one of the best ways of trying to locate sign is taking those two tracks because it's easy to navigate. It's quicker to cover ground for us walking. And like he said, it's easier for them to walk. So if they're going to be there, you can look if it's a previous rain or if it's real powdery dirt, you can kind of tell how old that was. You know when the last rain was okay, well, there was mud after that, it's a really deep impression. Or if it's powdered and it's sand, then you can, you know, see how fresh it is. You can even sometimes if it was real, real new, you can see those ridges kind of like the fingerprint of, of their foot.
2: Right. And Chet and I found droppings, Mike, when we were up there that we stepped on and they squished. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, you know, elk and deer droppings. You know, if you step on one of them with your foot and they they pulverize and they become powder. They're old. Yep. You know the exactly. turkeys are there, but they're just haven't been there for a while. Um, if you step on one and it's still green on the inside, kind of cracks a little bit and breaks open, that's probably a couple yep. days old. And then if it's like squishy, <laughs> yep. like anything, it's 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 new. It's yep. it's probably either that morning they walked by. We did find that after on that Saturday morning we were walking back to the truck and we found a dropping that was probably that other gobbler that was you know to the north of us that.
0: That three hundred yards away from the, the yeah. original setup, yeah, saw cu- tracks and saw, yep. or stepped on that one. Yeah,
2: and it was super fresh, so it was made that morning. So, and there was no turkeys behind us in the morning; they were all in front of us, and that was between us and the truck. So, correct. He he kind of cut off through the woods between us and the truck after we shot. So,
0: yeah, we tried going after him; it was unsuccessful. You, like you, you're not going to catch up to him if. If they're on a mission. Now, if they're just eating and grazing and gradually going through their, their normal way, you probably could. But for the most part, you're not going up there and being able to catch up to them just because, um, like any wild game, you know, it's far easier for them to, to navigate that area than it is for us.
2: Yeah, and they normally feed in like a circular pattern. They'll go up a, up one canyon bottom, you know, eating you know, they're eating bugs, they're eating grass, they're eating acorns, they're eating flower tops. So if you can find an area, they'll cross steep canyons easy. They'll walk up and down steep canyons just like an elk and deer will. Yeah. Um, but they're not living in those steep canyons on the hillsides. They're living at the bottom or they're living at the top. And what I mean by living is they're eating. That's, mm-hmm. where, they're, that's where they're finding their feed. Or at a bench, you know, halfway down a ridge. If there happens to be a bench in there, they'll they'll hit that on the way up and hit that. So... Knowing their pattern is, you know, like, again, Mike, you alluded to, you know, if they, if they flew down, they took off south, and they just started walking away from you, mm-hmm. they're heading south. So, if you know the area, you can maybe plan ahead and even drive a mile and a half around and get in front of them. Um, or, you know, you kind of know, okay, they're going to mm-hmm. head that way, and then, you know, over a course of a couple of days, if you don't bump them too hard and scare them out of their normal routine... They're probably coming back that same evening and roosting in that same area. Not Correct. maybe the same tree, you know exactly that tree, but sometimes they do. Um, but again, they're going to be in that general area, and then they just keep moving. The circles kind of—it's kind of like the old etch a sketch. Is that the thing where the spirograph? Yep. yep. You think of a spirograph. They're just kind of doing that because they ate in that three foot, six foot wide path yesterday, and today they're six feet over eaten.
0: For everyone under 30, you'll have to Google extra sketch and, and see what that is. <laughs> that was a game we had yep. a long time ago that kept you busy on uh, road trips. Or
2: <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I'm extremely old. right, Considerably older. Considerably older. That's it. That's what Chet always so,
0: says. So
1: to expand on that, so turkeys are habitual. They're almost like to a clock, so it's almost like – You have somebody that does the same routine every day based on the clock, but it might be a little bit off, but it's pretty much. So think about somebody that gets up at 5 a.m. every morning, they get up. Their routine is get up, they go get coffee. From there, they go grab the newspaper, they read the newspaper. From there, they go outside, they do maybe walk around the block. So talk about how turkeys are almost, they like to do the same type of thing almost on patterns. So if you saw them two hours after daylight and they're going south, you might see them again two hours after daylight or two hours and 15 minutes still going south in that same general area within 60 to 100 yards of each other.
2: 100% correct. Um, yeah, great example, Mike, of, you know, our morning routine. We get probably, you know, we're human, right, so we kind of always do the same thing. We, You know, if you drive into the office, you stop at, you know, QT or Starbucks and grab your coffee or whatever you do, and then, you know, you hit the office, you open your email, and... You know, you check those kind of things, or if you go to a construction site or whatever you do for a living, you know you mm-hmm. you have a you have a habit of doing what you're doing, um, and that's where you can start to pattern the birds, um, and that's a that's a key factor to successful turkey hunting. Um, if Chet and I would have had another day up there, even that Sunday, if we would have been able to stay that next day, we would have known where those birds came from on Saturday night, and we would have been on the other side of that ridge Sunday night. Um and we would have been in a different spot on
0: Probably a little bit to the south Sunday and a morning. little bit to the east.
2: Yep. Exactly. Yep. We would have been further south and further east than where we were on Saturday night. You know, because again, that's that pattern, that circle that they make. Um and if we wouldn't have been successful Saturday morning, we at least knew if we would have been able to go back up, and I did do that for you, Mike, because you went up, you know, what, mm-hmm. Wednesday night or whatever. Yep. So you hunted those same birds on Thursday. But we were able to give Mike intelligence, um, you know, kind of a scouting report, if nothing else, on, you know, here's what the birds did for us, so get ready, that's, you know, you want to be here versus there, they're not going north, they're heading south, Um, you know, and terrain's a big, big different maker there too, because north of where we were sitting was one of the main roads, and so, um, or a main road, you know, road that's traveled quite often, Um, it's not paved or anything, but... Um, they're typically not going to go that direction. They're going to try to stay away from noise and humans and those kind of things.
0: Yep. And that goes back to like what both of you said. If you go to the same unit over and over and you know, those ridges, you know, the terrain you have, you put the odds are far higher in your, on your side. We're going into a new area that we had, none of us had never been. You hear from, you know, a few people like, Oh, there's a bunch up there and, San Carlos was beautiful. You'll have no problem. You know, you'll be slocking birds opening morning. You'll double up. You'll triple up.
2: The woods will be dark with turkeys running around.
0: Yeah. It was absolutely gorgeous. It was unbelievable terrain. It was unbelievable beauty. But, yeah, you, you're you relying on friends. You're relying on you going up there and getting your own scouting report if you haven't been there numerous times. From Phoenix, it was, what, three and a half hours?
2: Yeah, door-to-door. Yeah, Yeah,
0: three and a half hours. Um, So doable to stay up there and go up there a couple times prior to and knowing the area a little bit more, we can formulate a game plan. Whether that's, you know, you can't do that out of state, but for the most part being centralized and concentrating on Merriam's like what we've been discussing, within three hours you can get to most places that they – they are at that terrain, high country, Ponderosa Pines, where everybody wants to escape in the summertime. We all go up there in their habitat. And summertime is not the hunting, hunting season, but we go up there. You can kind of go on camping trips, go up there on day trips, go on hiking trips, you know, have fun, and you can make that an adventure to know that, okay, if I get drawn here if I go here again, I can come here and I know this a little bit better because you've done a little e-scouting, you've talked to more people, and you've gone and put your boots on the ground, even if it's not during the season. You know those fingers, you know where a water hole could be, you know where natural spring could be. Any of those things, you know, could put the odds in your favor a little bit more for the next time.
2: Yeah, and this time of year is their breeding season, Um, similar to like September for elk and the rut for deer in this late December, January, you know, that's their turkey's breeding season is in the spring, and that's why Game and Fish and the different tribal entities that allow hunting on their tribal land, you know, have these seasons set up so that the main breeding part of the year is technically done before we get in the woods hunting. Um, so, you know, that's that's All the on hens purpose. have been bred
0: to keep that generation going to Correct. hopefully – the eggs, um, yeah, it's good. reach maturity and, you Yeah, know. good
2: game management by all the entities. They do a great job of making sure that we're not out there harvesting gobblers because you have, you know, the tags are always bearded turkeys and there are bearded hens, um, but the majority of the ones that have beards are gobblers or uh, the male, and they, you know, they do a good job of controlling that from that aspect of making sure that you're not hunting when it's prime breeding season so that, There's still the regeneration and the growth of our wild turkey population.
0: So we're kind of now jumping forward. That was our hunt. We're going in a lot more educated than taking in a youth for their very first time, right? We were just recently on a youth camp. Um, You have all walks of life, people that have been in the woods, that have been hunting, that have been camping. As a family, you have children there that their parents – have no idea about any woodsman or camping or anything to do with the outdoors. And you have some that their parents do get them out and they just want to be a part of a youth mentored camp. And now that they're between 10 and 17 in Arizona, um, they're in the, the bracket where they can get in on those youth hunts. How do you address that as a mentor going in and trying to slow your pace, slow it down and go in from that aspect versus on your own personal hunt?
2: Yeah, we, we said it at the beginning, Chet, and my number one rule with any of those youth hunts that I've been blessed enough to be part of, I think they've been running that camp that we went to this last weekend for 15-plus years. Um, if you're not familiar with that, the National Wild Turkey Federation, NWTF, puts on um, two to three mentored camps during this first youth season, and there's an over-the-counter youth turkey tags available. So kids 10 to 17 can hunt wild turkeys without being drawn. There's also a draw for certain units as well. So if your kid's fortunate enough to get drawn for those, you can still go into those camps and and hunt units that are right next to the camp area. But um, if you've got a child that, you know, is, again, 10 to 17, and you want to get them in the woods in a neat environment, um, have some good folks that know about turkey hunting teaching you or them um, their tricks and methods, um, it's a free camp. Food's provided, education's provided. We did a raffle. We gave away, what, two guns and a bunch of bunch of stuff for the kids. That
0: was the best part. The kids don't realize that they're going to get something no matter what. It could be um, every prize was awesome. They all got hats, donated from multiple conservation groups, uh, NWTF, Outdoor Experience for All. Christian Hunters of America, AS Arizona Elk Society, tons of groups uh, support those efforts, and that camp is made possible, a little plug from those grants that are possible through our Sportsman's for Wildlife and Conservation for Wildlife license plates. You guys can look that up on your own, but all those funds go to help support these types of things to contribute to educating our youth so that this time-held and honored uh, tradition is passed down for generations to come, but the fun aspect of it—bringing um, kids in that have not been able to experience that kind of stuff—is you know it's incredible to see their faces light up.
2: Yeah, and it's a family, friendly environment. I mean, I can't tell you how many every year we have—you know, mom, dad, kids that aren't hunting. You know, mom may not want to go hunting, but she'll come up and stay. And there's a fish hatchery just down the road that you can go and You know, we're at Colcord Camp on the Young Road, and you know, kids can go fishing. There was one group that one of the little kids, I think he was 11, right, 10 or 11, he got his first turkey, and then they went fishing in the afternoon. Yeah, how awesome what, is that? What a neat experience for that young man um, to just you know, first harvest of any animal, and it was a turkey, and you know, he'll have stories for the rest of his life and. Um, and again, it's all mentored, it's all volunteers, and, you know, we've been doing this for years. And um, the neat thing is with the kids, the the units that are up there are 4A and 4B out of that camp that are over the counter. This year, because of the snow, 4A was closed, but because of road access, um, it wasn't closed. The unit wasn't closed, but the roads were closed, so you couldn't really get into the good turkey habitat in 4A. But 4B was open, a lot of people heard gobbles. Um, that's the neatest thing for me is just getting that kid out there, that 10 to 14 year old kid that may never have hunted before, even a 16 year old I've taken out that have never hunted before. And they're hearing those gobblers for the very first time in the wild, not just on YouTube or some video that they watched. Um, you know, their eyes get real big, they get nervous, they get anxiety. Um, you know, one of the kids that's now back at camp is a mentor. You know, he's 23, 24 year old guy that, you know, killed his first turkey years ago. But, you know, when he was 10 and 11, you know, he fell asleep with us on one of the hunts and a bird was strutting right in front of him at like 30 yards and he slept right through it. Um, (laughs) You know, and now he's taking kids out and getting harvest. So it's kind of neat to hear some of those stories. Um, Yeah, it's a great opportunity. Again, it's a super easy hunt from the walking standpoint because most of the stuff, you know, again, is not super hilly. You don't have to go on a 20-mile death march with them because they're going to hate that. Um, you know, you come back to camp, lunch is provided. You don't have to cook. You don't have to clean up any food. They've got picnic tables and Gatorades and waters and for everybody to drink. And, you know, dinners was really good. They had brisket this year for dinner on Saturday Man. night. It was awesome. Yum. Um, so AES does all the cooking, just to give them a plug and a big thank you for, for their donation of their efforts and time up there. So they're a big partner for those turkey camps. But um, – Just kind of a neat overall, you know, seeing multiple kids come back year after year is kind of neat to see, Um, you know, because again, it's over the counter. So, you know, if your kid's 10 and they got a hunter safety done between 10 and 14, you can take them on a turkey hunt. Right. You know, and have people take you out that are experienced turkey hunters Um, and you can learn from them and, you know, and if you're a good turkey hunter, you can just come and hang out to camp and go yourself. You don't have to, you know, take somebody with you, but. We had one family, it's come a couple years, and um, they're from Tucson. I've got a chance to talk to them this this time, and they just, they knew the first couple years they came, they took people with them because they didn't know what they were doing, and now they felt comfortable, and they just went out by themselves.
0: And the best part was they're hearing and they're seeing adults do what, you know, what we're doing as mentors. We're educating them, showing them what to look for, showing the habitat, showing, you know what what gray light is, what the sun up is, what, when sundown is, what last shooting light is. You're educating all those kids out there for the rules and regulations and just as much, we're not biologists, but as much as you can just from the years of hunting and and what we've learned. And then they're seeing you practice. Obviously diaphragm calls being the hardest pot call, probably pot calling um, a box call relatively easy, but Every kid up there, in addition to giving a raffle ticket and winning up to a rifle or, uh, you know, hydration pack or hats, all sorts of cool stuff, they all got one of the push pin, uh, basically. Push pin call. Yeah, Yeah. push pin call. It makes purrs and, and clucks and, you know, just hen vocalizations. Every kid, you know, lit up. And they're just, the you can see in their eyes, you can see in the smile and the face. Um, they didn't know that every, every number is going to get called off, but they all got something, and uh, that's what it was all about too, just seeing their faces light up, and um, we kind of touched on it. It's a good idea not to push them as hard as you would push yourself on a hunt. You want to make it as fun and memorable as possible if you don't come prepared with The right clothing. Um, It's the mentor is up there to help, but they can't prepare everything for mom and dad. So if you're listening to this and you want your kid to go, if you're a hunter, you probably already know to look at the forecast, to look at the terrain, the temperature, all that kind of stuff. But if not, it is behoove of you to to take that into consideration. Have a good pair of shoes. Have a good pair of socks for the kids. And to look at the forecast, so that they know um, what to bring. Now, you could have something as simple as like a uh, a kid's uh, camouflage suit over normal clothes that keep you warm, and then the the camouflage suit can break up the pattern because you're sitting there. Because as we've discussed, how great their eyesight is, but you want them to have fun. You don't if they are tired, let them sleep. If uh, they're done for the day, go back to camp. It's it's really their hunt. Um, they want a, a special toy. They want a special, you know, gummy bears or M&Ms, whatever it is. That's what keeps them going and keeps them entertained and makes them want to come back. I mean, you guys have been seeing it far longer than me, but seeing the kids happy and want to come back versus cold, shivering, and miserable is not going to want to make them come back to to Turkey camp.
2: Right. And that's, that's always, I mean, I Chet has the same philosophy with his son that was up there, but you know, it, my number one rule is it's the kid's hunt. I've been on, my two boys are obviously older now, but they're um, you know, they're out of that youth hunt. Because I'm significantly older, right, Chad? Is that the... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wasn't going to say yeah. it, but... I'm
0: an old guy. <laughs> considerably older, yeah. so the, your, your two sons
2: <laughs> have to be old. You'll have to be considerably older also. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was always my number one rule on their hunts was, you know, what do you want to do today? You know, I've we've been with another good friend of ours that, you know, we went up with my son and his daughter and it was blowing like crazy Sunday morning. It was our last morning to hunt because we had to go home and... We got up at 4 o'clock in the morning when the alarm went off and the trailer's moving because the wind's blowing so hard. And, you know, the kids kind of looked at us and go, you know, it's crazy cold and windy. And we kind of looked at them and said, hey, what do you want to do? And they said, we're going back to bed. And we're like, okay, because it's their hunt. And guess what? They want to go again next year. Right. You know, if you drag them out of there in the middle of the night, it's cold and windy and they're not hearing anything. And, you know, you're you're taking them on a five-mile death walk up and down canyons, you know. You know your kids. They're not going to want to do that again. It's not fun. So that's the number one rule is of that camp specifically. And they have archery equipment there so the kids can shoot at targets. The kids get along with each other. They're having fun, they're interacting yep. with new kids or meeting friends that they may not meet anywhere else. Um, game and Fish is at the at there so they get a chance to interact with Game and Fish officers and realize that they're normal people just like you and I. And they're just there to enforce the rules and um you know make sure that everybody's safe and doing the right thing and they're not the big scary person when they come up to you on the road and they stop you and they want to talk to you about your hunt um so it's kind of neat and you can pick their brain they'll be glad to talk to you and tell you what the turkeys are doing or not doing or you know that kind of stuff the game unit for what 23 north kevin Mm -hmm. right wasn't kevin he was up there in camp and you know it was great to just chat with him a little bit and just pick his brain i've hunted that unit forever and You know, just kind of trying to figure out what they were doing because we weren't hearing much activity in 23. 4A or 4B was, they were hearing a lot of gobbles, but 23 was pretty quiet.
1: Mikey,
0: anything else?
1: I think you guys covered a lot of great information, for sure. This big thing with turkey hunting, just get out there and enjoy it. You know, there's no right or wrong. Just talk turkey to them, and, you know, and then once you hear that gobble, it's it truly is what makes the whole thing. There's nothing like... Being out in the forest and hearing that that roar of a gobble, I mean it. It's just it's like no other. Maybe maybe a big bull elk, but <laughs> a, a, a big yeah. old gobbler when he's doing it, it's 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 impressive.
0: Well, there's so few animals that you know during the rut or during breeding season do those vocalizations, and and hearing a gobbler or hearing a bull elk, I mean it's it's awesome. You know you're you know you're in the area if you're hearing them. You know it's prime time, um, and you go out there with a smile on your face and no matter what it's a learning adventure and and uh have fun.
2: Yeah, you you know, normally you'll hear the most gobbles in the morning. They'll gobble at night, you know, if there's a reason to gobble at night, but normally they're gobbling in the morning just kind of announcing themselves, trying to attract other females to them. But yeah, if you're out early in the morning, even on the weekends, um from now till, you know, July August, if you're out early enough You know, you might still hear gobbles even in June and July. It's not unusual. And just kind of, kind of getting, closing it with some of their, their preferences. You know, once the breeding season is over, no different than like bull elk, you know, they're around the cows during the breeding season, but then the gobblers break off and leave and leave the hens and the poults, you know, by themselves. And so, you know, if you're out camping this summer and you see a bunch of gobblers in an area and I'd try to get a tag for that unit and go back to that area cuz they're not leaving very far. They're yep. they're usually year round in that same kind of areas. Exactly. You know? Exactly.
0: Save yep. those GPS coordinates for yourself.
2: Yep. Yep. Exactly. Or call exactly. Chet or me and let us know where yeah, you found Yeah, I mean, them.
0: feel free to forward that information as well <laughs> with pictures. Um Exactly. Howard only uh only goes after ones as uh what did we we joked? Howard said the if someone came back and had any success, they said, yeah, we, we roosted a bird. And Howard said, oh, yeah, we did too, but, you know, we got close enough and saw that it, it didn't have two-inch spurs and it wasn't causing sparks as it's walking over the over the rocks. <laughs> yeah. 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 It if it did.
2: wasn't tripping over its beard, we're probably not going after it. <laughs> exactly. So, a
0: little big. Yep. Oh, I, I almost forgot on the intro we did uh, talk a little bit about you being the sixth best – Turkey caller in the Arizona. Before we close out, let's share that little fun story.
2: <laughs> uh, it's my it's my one thing that I will brag about. Um, it's kind of funny. This goes probably 15 years ago. We NWTF held a turkey calling contest here in Arizona because there's a couple really good turkey callers in this state. There's several really good turkey callers, but a couple of them had interest to go back to the National Wild Turkey Federation's annual conference and compete nationally. Um, against the greatest callers in the country and then actually in the world um, come into that competition in Nashville every year. Um, and so we held this competition. Um, my good friend and mentor at the time um, who's since passed, unfortunately Marvin Robbins, kind of hosted it, uh, kind of led it. And so I just showed up to help set up tear down and do whatever I could do. Cause I was a novice Turkey hunter at that time. Um, and so There was five guys that showed up that are, you know, very good turkey callers. Um, And then Marv decided he needed one more person in the competition. So he said, Howard, you're going in. So that's my claim to fame. I know I'm at least the sixth best caller in the state (laughs) because there was only six callers at the competition. And there hasn't been a competition since, so nobody's been able to outrank me. Chet tried the other day. He's like... (laughs) Maybe I'm fifth best caller in the state because he called <laughs> it his own bird last year, and I'm like, hey. There has to be a competition. Yeah, if you're not competing, it doesn't count, Chet, so. <laughs> I
0: love it. I love it. And, uh, Mikey, any any funny stories before we close out?
1: Oh, boy. I mean, we, we got we plenty. We have, that has any a that whole, we could other, whole other podcast. How or did Sun you do on stories. the San Carlos, Mike? I got skunked. They went mute, and they didn't say <laughs> a sound. But the cool thing is, is like we talked about, is we went right to where you guys were and, and harvested, and I was in there for the first four hours, five hours, and not a sound. So my rest of my trick hunt for the next day and a half really became a scouting of just getting to know the area and kind of seeing where the sign is. And so now we have a, a much better, you know, forward thinking. Next year, we have some new critical areas that we can really focus on and have some backup areas because. The key part with turkey hunting is not putting all your eggs in one one basket. It's actually understanding where a lot of different flocks are and birds are to where if something happens, you have backup spots, just like how Howard talked about driving in. If you were the second person there, you have you have to make a decision quick and get to your, your, your B spot, C spot, and D spot, and that's kind of how I ended up my turkey, was knowing that I was going to sacrifice um, my turkey hunt. But it was more about the you know, learning and finding sign and things like that, which I have at least four new areas that we can go and explore and spend a little more time on. So,
2: yeah, and something that Mike did, I know he does because I do it with him when we're out together. Is you know, if you're driving roads and you don't know where the birds are, they're not making any noise. Chet and I did this on the youth hunt too. Um, you know, you're out driving; it's just getting daylight, like you know, the sky is just turning, you know, some light color. Um, you know, we'll drive every quarter mile, stop, shut the truck off, wait a few minutes, and then make either a coyote yelp, or if it gets a little bit lighter, I started hitting the box call because it carries a little bit further because you can get a louder noise out of it, Um, and just seeing if we could hear a gobble off in the distance. And if we would have gotten a gobble off in the distance, then we could have made a game plan. But I see it every year, and you hear it and you see it. If you're out in the woods at all, you'll see a guy drive down the road in a truck or a side-by-side And they'll, you'll hear them drive, and you'll hear the truck stop. You'll hear the engines shut off, and then they're like on their box call right after they shut the engine off. They don't hear anything, and then they get in their truck two seconds later and fire the engine back up and drive down the road. Um, Again, just like I said when I would walk around and get set up, you got to let it quiet down a little bit because the turkeys are used to trucks and side by sides moving through the woods. And so if you drive and you stop and you shut your engine off and the first thing you do is hit that, they know that the truck was just right there. So there's no reason for a turkey to be sitting there you know, squawking or yelping. Um, they're going to think that's unusual. So they're not going to typically respond to that. So give it a couple minutes to calm down and then hit that box call or whatever you're calling with um, to give them, mm-hmm. again, a chance to get the nerves out of their head um, that something just drove by, and I got to make be quiet. them feel safe again. Yep,
0: exactly. Mikey, will you do us do the honors?
1: Lord, we just uh, we just thank you for creating the turkey, Lord. It is such a, an incredible species that you created for our enjoyment, Lord, and and everything else that goes with it. It's not just the Thanksgiving th- feast, Lord, but just the the coolness that in the springtime that you created this majestic bird that can gobble and talk and. And be so smart at so, so many times, and other times it's just like it, it comes together. But we just thank you, Lord, that we are able to come talk about Turkey. Lord, we just ask that you bless all of our listeners, Lord. And and we just ask that uh, through you that all things are, are given You know, in this great country that we live in, Lord. We just ask that you just continue to bless it, Lord, and give us direction. And bless our troops overseas, Lord, and, and our world as a whole, Lord. And we know that through you. There's only one reason that we do what we do, Lord, is to bring people to you. And I just ask, Lord, that you would keep knocking and those doors be open where you have to open. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.